Hello, this is Robert Rickover at Body Learning. And today my guest is Dr. Kathleen Hood, who is a uh, board-certified family practitioner in uh, Westport, Massachusetts. She's uh, been taking Alexander Technique lessons with Mary Derbyshire, who lives in nearby Little Compton, Rhode Island. And we had an earlier conversation about her experiences with the Alexander Technique, her experiences and that of uh, some of her patients. And today, uh, we're, I want to focus on the pain issue, the, the technique's ability to help alleviate chronic pain, and in particular with reference to today's very serious uh, opioid addiction problem in, the, in many parts of the U.S. Um, Dr. Hood, welcome to the show for a second time. Thank you. Nice to be back. Well, it's good to talk to you once again. Uh, before we begin our conversation, could you give our listeners your, your kind of quick take on what the Alexander Technique is? Yes. Uh, my understanding is that it is a formulaic way of looking at body use that originated um, about 100 years ago in the acting tradition in England and that it um, provides people with a way of becoming more aware of how they use their body and specifically with identifying habit patterns of use that may not be serving them and help them to redirect in a way that they create new patterns of use that do serve them. Uh, excellent. And just one minor correction, it actually originated in Australia, but Alexander moved to England quite early on. So huh. England is, is best known uh, as the home of Alexander uh, work. Um, we In our earlier conversation, you mentioned um, an example of a patient who you would have thought would would be would be appropriate to to prescribe pain medicine to because of her situation and she turned you down because she said she was managing it on her own with the Alexander technique. Could you say a little bit about that? Yes, uh, most remarkable, very elderly lady who had suffered a fracture of her cervical spine as a result of a tripping fall down the steps from her kitchen to her attached garage. And the neurosurgeons had told her it was potentially unstable and recommended a fixation surgical procedure so that there would not be slippage and she would not end up with quadriplegia. And she was in a fair amount of pain, but preferred for her own reasons not to have the surgery done, and when I saw her in the office and asked how she was doing with the pain, she told me that it was very uncomfortable at times. She'd wake up in the middle of the night having difficulty supporting her head. She was trying hard to keep it stable, as the surgeons had recommended, but she was not interested in pain pills because she was managing the pain with the Alexander Technique. 
And and that's excuse me, that's one of the things that got you interested yourself in the technique. It, it was the thing. The thing. I can yes. I can imagine. And I know that you um you you yourself suffered from some shoulder pain and the technique after you'd had some lessons that the technique helped with that as well. That's right. I had more than an academic interest in it or professional right. interest in it and um was happy to see that it was applicable to all kinds of pain. And before our conversation, uh, you mentioned your husband's situation with pain and the Alexander Technique. Yeah, he is um, very happy that chronic neck pain that he had for a long time and believed was not really something that could be treated because of arthritis on imaging of his neck that had been done responded dramatically to just a couple of sessions uh, with Mary Derbyshire and learning the basics of Alexander. Mm -hmm. And what what we had talked about uh, kind of briefly towards the end of our last conversation, or perhaps it was afterwards, um, this whole question of the opioid epidemic that's arisen, excuse me, in America over the last uh, decade or so, especially the last few years, um, does seem, uh, I would, I I can't imagine that it's not related to the fact that pain, pain medicine is prescribed fairly freely these days to patients who've had surgery or who are in pain for some other reason. And it seems as though there are an awful lot of pain clinics out there and it's my sense is that a lot of them really resort primarily to drugs as their intervention what's your take on that well my take on it is that um, they're prescribed because they work and because they've been studied and because we have efficacy and outcome studies mm-hmm. all of which are short term I believe mm-hmm. and it is appropriate in short term use like related to surgical pain or multiple trauma the problem starts when it becomes more than a 3 week or at most 6 week course of pain control and it becomes more chronic because these medicines were never intended to be used in a chronic fashion, but uh, patients become uh, dependent on them, are afraid they can't do without them. Um, I think a lot of the stress and anxiety about not having something to resort to if and when the pain recurs drives a lot of requests for prescriptions. And up until recently, doctors truly, I believe, did not realize just how risky they could be or how much of a problem prescribing them the way we have would cause in the long run. Mm-hmm. Right. And there, and I guess there, I'm, I'm sure that's the main reason. Of course, there have also been some instances of doctors just um, prescribing uh in vast quantities, and some of them have been arrested or, or kicked out of the medical profession, I guess. But just in general, the situation is one that just, it, it's, it seems to me, makes that kind of addiction in, cer- in a certain number of people almost inevitable. 
Well, I personally think that the brain chemistries of some people are more prone to developing habituation or addiction. Hard to look at a person and know whether they are that person or not. Mm -hmm. We should assume, I think, everybody could be and behave accordingly with prescribing. But I think you're right that prescribing large amounts has been part of the problem and resulted in diverting them as their street value has risen dramatically. Mm -hmm. um, and this has resulted in the common practice now of having a opiate use contract and uh, letting the patients know that they will be tested um, in, in an unannounced fashion for the presence of the prescribed medicine. Mm -hmm. If they are supposed to be taking it regularly, just to confirm that it's not being diverted. And so, you know, the whole thing has become very complicated and we're certainly going rapidly in the wrong direction with respect both to helping patients and to helping avoid this terrible social problem that we now have. Right, and that that takes us to what the Alexander technique as one possible, at least partial solution, can offer in that often a fairly uh, short course of lessons can enable someone to um, manage their own pain, manage themselves in a way that they have less pain. Perhaps that's a better way of putting it. Right. And your husband is a perfect example. He had two lessons and it made a big difference. Yeah, I, you know, I think that it has tremendous potential in this area, and the time is right to explore that. Yeah, and uh, we should I should mention that there is um, a large-scale study that was conducted in the United Kingdom by the National Health Service relating uh, to, to uh, chronic low back pain. Primary, I think that was the focus of the study. But it, be, it was very clear that a, sh, uh, a relatively small number of Alexander technique lessons was more effective than uh, two or three alternatives that were explored. And, um, it, and there are a few other studies, and there's a lot of anecdotal uh, in, uh, support of that idea. Uh, I suppose the big a big issue is that the Alexander technique is is not a medical process. It's not a, a quote therapy unquote. It's a te a teaching method, and I could see some issues in making that part of the solution to the opioid problem, and also the fact that um, people would have to pay for lessons. It's not covered typically by insurance. Do you see any ways around those two problems for, for bringing the Alexander Technique ideas to bear? Well, you know, there's plenty of precedent in medicine and certainly in primary care medicine, which is where a lot of the referrals to the specialists originate in the first place. Mm -hmm that incentivizes us to do counseling and coordination of care. Mm -hmm. So I think that if providers could get training, it would be helpful because then we could include that into the counseling that we do. And as long as we specify exactly what counseling we did, 
um, that's deemed, um, you know, audit worthy, as we say, for payment mm -hmm. and insurance company because it's being incorporated into the treatment plan of a credentialed insured prescriber. So to whatever degree we can put it in the hands of primary care providers, even nurse practitioners, physician assistants, and physicians, or even RNs in coordinated clinics, I think it would be possible to incorporate it pretty seamlessly. Mm -hmm. And you, I know that from our previous conversation that you you are, are pretty proactive in making information about the Alexander Technique available to your patients. Uh, Mary says they're little pamphlets in your office and you talk to them. What, what's been your experience with someone who's in pain who might normally be, be getting uh, a pain painkiller prescription or might in fact be getting one? What is your experience at sort of nudging them into this other way of dealing with pain? Well, I'm at an advantage because they're there in my office in the first place because they're looking for a solution. Mm -hmm. And so we're allied against the problem, which is the pain. You know, we're not at odds with each other. Right. Ideally. And um, I feel like almost all patients are interested in an alternative to a pill. I think it's a very rare patient who just wants the pill. That's my experience of my practice in any event. And I think that it's a rare person who has severe pain who is not also either fearful or angry or both. And those emotions cloud our insight and our ability to feel empowered in our own bodies. We start to feel victimized by our pain or the circumstances that we perceive to have resulted in the pain. So I feel like if we start with a shift in emphasis away from that disempowerment and focus on something that puts a measure of control back in the hands of the patient, it defuses that powerless, frightened, angry feeling and already begins to take apart the underpinnings of the pain. And and that's what you do, right? Well, right. We say, so, you know, just because you have an image in your mind that there's this stru structural problem, in my husband's case, it was, you know, bad arthritis in the neck, um, you start to, to create a story in your head about why it is inevitable then that you must have this pain. And that begins a whole domino effect in the wrong direction, I believe. So if you can back up to the starting point and say, well, yes, so we have this information on this imaging and that does not necessarily dictate your experience in your body. And to take it a step further, there is an as yet untried way of getting with yourself, so to speak, and using your cognition to redirect your physical response. Just maybe there's another way to be experiencing what feels right now like pain and or to release that and recognize that it may actually not be dictated by the structural changes available on the x-ray. 
And of the the patients that you've you've talked to in this way who've actually said okay I'll give it a try what's been the general outcome of that well mostly it's okay if you insist you know there's a lot of skepticism but I encourage people that they can keep their skepticism intact you know they just need to desire a different outcome and be willing to give it a try, be receptive, um, and they may still benefit from it. I think it helps when I share with them my personal experience of having been in the same situation with a pain that I had had for a really long time in my shoulder and hadn't been able to figure out or get relief from, and having very gradually, bit by bit, as I studied the technique and learned how to reside differently in my body, been able to experience relief of that pain. And I, I do think that helps people to take that leap of faith and, you know, understand that I'm not just trying to divert them from a prescription I don't want to write, but also give them the same tool that I have to try to control pain. And, and have you found that those patients who perhaps grudgingly initially did decide to, to explore the Alexander Technique, did, were there a significant amount of what I guess we could call success stories? Yes, I think so. I, you know, I do think that not being able to use the insurance to pay for the lessons is a definite deterrent. And for some folks, you know, for whom the maximum benefit is cumulative over time, as I was, that could represent a significant deterrent. Um, we mentioned the last time we talked that one option is to write a prescription as a doctor uh, saying, you know, prescribing Alexander Technique lessons, diagnosis, chronic neck pain, cervical spondylosis, whatever, um, and have the patients incur the expense of the lessons, benefit from them, and then clip that to a copy of the prescription and submit it to their insurance company as an out-of-network um, expense because Mary in this case is certified as a teacher the insurance companies in my experience tend to just look for a licensure or a certification as a legitimizing factor to justify the payment out of network and even if those patients don't get paid back it will raise the consciousness of the folks who are processing the claims that there is a relatively very affordable modality out there that lines up, you know, favorably against very expensive specialists and extensive physical therapy um, costs that they incur for patients for treating the same problem. Right, yeah. From, from the insurance company's point of view, I would think Alexander, paying for Alexander lessons would be a bargain. Absolutely. But their internal bureaucracies may have a, a hard time dealing with that. I, I guess is, is well. You might think so, but you know, I'm heartened by the fact that acupuncture was in this category not long ago. You know, this country did not have acupuncture on the list of covered services for most of the major payers 
And, you know, increasingly it is. I was surprised to read just a couple of days ago that the senior whole health Medicare Medicaid product in our state now includes, you know, some money for eyeglasses and, you know, that sort of thing. And on the bottom of a short list was 20 acupuncture treatments now covered by senior whole health. Mm. I was amazed by that. And I think it is in response to, you know, recognizing it as a potentially very cost effective alternative to runaway costs for specialists and ancillary therapies. Is there anything else you'd like to add before we uh, bring the conversation to an end? Yeah, just one thing, which is that, you know, we now understand that the receptors on the brain that are affected by opioids tend to multiply and or intensify, as I understand it, meaning that the longer you use a short-acting narcotic like Percocet or Vicodin, oxycodone or hydrocodone, the greater the chance that you are cultivating an ability to actually experience more severe pain. And, you know, that's just a terrifying notion, and I'm sure responsible in part or maybe in whole for a lot of the opioid addiction crisis. And educating patients to that fact, helping them understand that underlies your reticence to use those medicines, and helping them to realize that, you know, the longer they delay using a different approach, um, the more likely they are to end up in that set of circumstances, I think is is a good argument for really seriously giving Alexander and you know similar body work modalities the credibility they deserve in the spectrum of care for chronic or you know protracted pain. Well, maybe this is a good point to bring our conversation to an end. Um, my guest today has been uh, Dr. Kathleen Hood, who's a board-certified family practitioner of 31 years' experience. She works in uh, uh, Westport, Massachusetts, and uh, I'll put a link to her uh, website of her practice, as well as the website of her teacher, Mary Derbyshire, who lives nearby in Little... Compton, Rhode Island, and I'll also put a link to uh, a website where you can uh, learn more about the the Alexander Technique in general. Uh, Dr. Hood, thank you so much for doing these two interviews. It's, it's been my pleasure. <laughs>